Hello, and welcome to Truth For Today with Terry Fant. And yes, I'm your host, Terry Fant. In a world full of confusion that leads to chaos, the answer for clarity is the absolute truth of God's Word. It has stood the test of time. I hope you'll listen to this message with an open heart and that God would speak to you one-on-one through it. If you're ever in the Florence, Mississippi area, then we would love for you to join us for live worship. Please feel free to reach out to me at terryfant at icloud.com. May the Lord bless you as he draws, shapes, and instructs you. Now, let's listen to today's message. Yes, amen. What a powerful time of praise. Uh, two songs I want you to think about for just a minute. The themes: Christ be magnified. And then caught up in your presence, these holy moments. And I was thinking about how that applies to this morning's message. And then tonight's message is going to be a continuance of that, uh, if you will. Uh, how those two songs apply, and the first one being Christ be magnified. And I, I thought about how in my life when Christ is magnified is when I'm living the transformed life and not the conformed life, right? When the world hasn't conformed me back into an image that uh, doesn't really care about how I live, doesn't really care about how I talk, doesn't really care, don't really care about how I uh, go about my day-to-day life. And so that's conformed, but the transformed life, that's when Christ is magnified. When people look at you and you stand out a little bit, I'm not talking about like the the kind of clothes you wear, but I'm talking about the kind of speech you have and the kind of activity that you have and the, the things in our life that magnify him are holiness. And that's not a popular topic with us, is it? Holiness. And what is the one hindrance to that? We looked at it this morning. That is the roadblock of sin, right? And we talked this morning about uh, seven, seven truths to live a victorious life. And a lot of it, you notice a lot of it dealt with uh, things that we learn and know about sin and how sin gets in the way. So here's the connection there. Sin uh, steals away the opportunity for Christ to be magnified in the moment. Are you with me? When I'm committing sin, Christ is not magnified. Now, thanks be to God that even in, when I fall to sin, and you do too, uh, he's magnified in his grace and mercy to restore, hallelujah, and bring us to a good place. But, but the kind of grace he gives is not the kind of grace that says, okay, I'll give you grace, just keep on sinning. It's the kind of grace that says, I can forgive you and pick you up and cleanse you and set you on a new path, but you can't keep going back to that same old well. And so I thought about that. Then the second song as we sing about these holy moments. Again, what is it that gets in the way of me experiencing those holy... I don't know about you guys, man. You could just feel the presence of God in this place when we were singing that song. And, and the fact that uh, what disturbs those holy moments in our lives and what is it that keeps us oftentimes from sensing the presence of God and having more holy moments. And I would say again, that big three-letter word uh, called sin. And when, we're, when we are sinning in our life, when we have sin in our lives, wouldn't you agree with me? Uh, it doesn't change the fact that we're his child, but it sure does distort the relationship. And uh, it's like when you were doing wrong and you were around your daddy, you know what I'm talking about? You, you just kind of stayed in the corner a little bit. You didn't, you didn't want to get noticed too much because you didn't know what daddy knew and what was coming next. And so uh, I'm thankful this morning for the message. And so tonight we're going to just kind of jump right on, on piggyback that if you can. And so if you have your Bible, take, take and join me in 2 Samuel chapter 11. 2 Samuel chapter number 11. If you know that chapter and verse of the Bible, 2 Samuel, you'll know that's when David had his round with Bathsheba and Uriah and Joab, and well, we'll get into that as we go along, okay? <clears throat> I was surprised that any of you came back. Usually when you preach a strong message like this morning, uh, you know it's easier just to sort of stay away, but I'll tell you this about Hickory Ridge. You people are special people, and what I mean by that is I've gotten encouragement today. Most pastors, they'd run you out. They wouldn't come back, and, uh, and so I just want to say thank you for being a special people who really love the Word in its entirety, 
the messages on praise the last two weeks and the messages on uh, the truth of dealing with hidden sin in our lives. And so tonight, isn't it good for us if sin does keep us from magnifying the Lord and if sin also steals away from us holy moments in his presence, okay, uh, then wouldn't it be good for us to understand how sin works and the pattern of sin? And so what we're going to do is take that one section of this morning's message, which was the sin's pattern. Do you all remember that? There were four steps to sin's pattern or four processes in that. Number one was it begins with a lingering look. Some of y'all remember that. It's, it's not the first look that gets us. It's that second and lingering look, right? And so the lingering look. Second, we said it goes from a lingering look and it proceeds to desire. <clears throat> and that's want to. And want to, we said, is very powerful, isn't it? Uh, because ultimately what we want to do, if the want doesn't go away, if God doesn't help us find peace in the want, we will fool around and do the thing that we want to do, okay? So we said that a lingering look goes to, it proceeds to uh, um, desire. And then desire, when it stays there unchecked, what happens next, we desire so long because desire is painful, want to is painful, and so we want to settle the pain by taking action. And so we lingering look, and it proceeds to desire, and it progresses to taking action. And then finally, we do the thing, and then we, and then we find out that sin also deceives. Now, it deceives on the front end because it, it portrays a portrait of pleasure that's not going to harm anything. It's just going to be fun. And then you, you look too long, and you desire, and you do, and you find out that what you thought it was on the beginning is not what it really was. And it'll hook you, right? It's like setting the hook on a, <clears throat> on, a, on a bass fish, right? And all of a sudden you're hooked. And then you begin to live uh, based on a lie, okay? And so we're going to watch this. You're going to see the four-step pattern of sin in the life of a man named David, who we know oftentimes referred to as a man after God's own heart. And so what I want to do is invite you to stand to your feet. And you know what we're going to do? We're going to read like 27 verses again tonight. How about that? Some of y'all are like, well, I knew we should have just came, stayed home and been, come back Wednesday night. And, and so here we go, all right? Here we go. 2 Samuel chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. Now, I'm going to read sort of quickly. I do that. And you just follow along best you can. We're going to talk through it as we go along. Um, but remember, we're talking about David. He's king. He's not the shepherd boy anymore. God's given him a prominent position. And he's supposed to be out doing something. Anybody know before we read? War. He, he also, he's supposed to be out. Kings are normally out defending and, and taking territory and those kinds of things. But David is not, okay? So let's read, beginning. By the way, rest has its place. Rest has its place. That's why you need a Sabbath day. But the other days, you and I better be on task, amen, getting after it. All right, here we go, verse 1. And it happened in the spring of the year, at the time when kings go out to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the people of Ammon and besieged Rabbah, and David remained at Jerusalem. Now, Joab being his chief military officer, okay, the commander of his army. <clears throat> then it happened one evening that David arose from his bed and walked out on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman, and she was bathing. And the woman was very, uh-oh, here it is, beautiful to behold. He saw her. Step one. So David sent and inquired about the woman. Why? Because he desired her. He looked too long. And someone said to him, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Elam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? And David sent messengers and took her action. And she came to him, and he lay with her, for she was <clears throat> cleansed from her impurity, and she returned to her house. And the woman conceived, and so she sent and told David and said, I am with child. Now he's, he saw, he desired, he took action, and watched the deceiving. Deceiving is going to start in verse number 6, and it's going to run all the way through the rest of the chapter. Watch how you and I will live when we're deceived and our heart is hardened because we've taken the bait. All right? Verse number 6. Then David sent to Joab saying, send me Uriah the Hittite. It was Uriah's wife, Bathsheba. 
And Joab sent Uriah to David, sent him home from the battlefield. When Uriah had come to him, David asked Joab, well, um, ask how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war prospered. He was acting like he cared, see. And David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah departed from the king's house and a gift of food from the king followed. Boy, seems like such a nice man, doesn't it? And Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all his servants of his Lord and did not go down to his house. So when they told David, and this is what they said, Uriah did not go down to his house. And David said to Uriah, did you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? And Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah are dwelling in tents. And my Lord Joab and the servants of my Lord are encamped in the open fields. Shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and to lie with my wife as you live and as your soul lives? I will not do this thing. Talk about a noble man, a man of integrity, Uriah was. <clears throat> then David, verse 12, said to Uriah, wait here today also, and tomorrow I will let you depart. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. Now when David called him, he ate and drank before him, and he made him drunk. He made him. That's not the same person. That's David made Uriah. Have another. Have another. Let me fix you another. Here, have a double. All right? And at evening, he went out to lie on his bed with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go, uh-oh. He did not go down to his house. In the morning, it happened that David wrote a letter to Joab, and he sent it by the hand of Uriah. Uriah is carrying his own death sentence. And he wrote in the letter saying, set Uriah in the forefront of the hottest battle and then retreat from him that he may be struck down and die. And so it was while Joab besieged the city that he assigned Uriah to a place where he knew there was, a, there was valiant men. <clears throat> then the men of the city came out and fought with Joab and some of the people of the servants of David fell and Uriah the Hittite died also. Then Joab sent and told David all the things concerning the war and charged the messenger. And so he said, Joab grabs a messenger and says, now here, you take this message back to David. When you have finished telling the matters of the war to the king, if it happens that the king's wrath arises, in other words, if David gets mad when you tell him that we went to this spot and we're fighting, and he says to you, why did you approach so near the city when you fought? Why did you go to that spot? You know, that's where the valiant men were. You know, that was the hottest part of the battle. Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who struck the Abimelech, the son of uh, Jeroboseth? Was it not a woman who cast a piece of millstone on him from the wall so that he died in Thebes? Why did you go near the wall? In other words, if David says to you, why did you go to the hottest part of the battle? You know what's happened every time we get close to the wall. They got people up there with archers. They can just throw a millstone down like in the past. And somebody's going to die. That was stupid. Why would you do that? Okay. And so David is saying to the messenger, if, he's, if David says that to you, here's what you say in response. You shall say, you're reading with me into verse 21. You just say at the end of what he's asking you and he's questioning you. You just tell him, your servant Uriah the Hittite died also. And he'll remember his deceitful plan. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent by him. And the messenger said to David, Surely the men prevailed against us and came out to us in the field. Then we drove them back as far as the entrance of the gate. The archers shot from the wall at your servants, and some of the king's servants are dead. And your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. Then David said to the messenger, Thus you shall say to Joab, Do not let this thing displease you, for the sword devours one as much as it does the other. Hey, people die. That's what he said. Don't worry about it, Joab. People die. Don't worry that you left him out there by himself. Don't worry that you deceitfully ran him up the hottest part of the battle and backed away from him. Don't worry about the fact that you trained together, shed blood together, uh, built camaraderie. It was one of your faithful soldiers. Don't worry about that. Hey, just remember, people die. The sword kills one, it kills another. Strengthen your attack against the city and go ahead and overthrow it. And so encourage him. Well, when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she mourned for her husband. And when her mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done, listen closely, displeased the Lord. 
Let's bow for a word of prayer, if you would bow with me. Father, we thank you that you've given us so much wisdom in your word. And I pray tonight that as the people of God, those of us who've been born again, that, Lord, we would take careful notes, both on notebook, whether it be on our phone or notebook, and especially we would take great note in our heart. That, Lord, we might understand the pattern of sin and we would see it for what it is. And, Lord, we would find ourselves in a place where we are wise to the enemy's schemes and how he uses temptation against us. And that, Father, you would intervene this week because surely sin is going to creep up and surely temptation is going to rise its head and surely the enemy has all sorts of plans to cause us to fall. And I pray in Jesus' name you'd make us wise. As you preach this word through me, preach it to me. And God, as you preach it to me, let my heart take careful notes. And I pray you'd write this message on the tablet of our hearts. And that we, like little children, would feed at your table from the words of life. And we would be better for it. We'd be transformed into the image of Jesus. So, Lord, help us tonight, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. <clears throat> you didn't know that today we were going to deal with sin twice in a row, did you? Right? And you're like, come on, man. And uh, yet the, ma- the truth of the matter is it's one of the most common obstacles that we deal with. So it makes sense for us to be a people who are educated in it, right, that God would teach us. I was thinking about this morning, and I I said, you know, isn't God gracious to bring us in, sit us down, and have a talk with us? Uh, Y'all know what I'm talking about? Uh, What I mean by that is sometimes my my heart gets a little heavy in the area of, uh, you know, shepherding the flock of God because because I see probably a little more firsthand in, in different relationships how sin devastates and destroys relationships, and homes, and children, and marriages, and, and uh, man, it just, it just sometimes gets almost too much to bear to see it happening, and watch the pain of it, and, but it also helps me understand why it is that God hates sin. You see, when I was a young man, I thought that my mom and dad gave me rules, and regulations, and ways to live, because they just didn't want me to have any fun. But then as I became a man and grew up, I put childish things away, the Apostle Paul said. And what I mean by that is I began to understand God gave me some boundaries that if I operate inside of them his way, there is blessing and peace and joy untold. The same was true about my mom and dad. Same is true as me as a dad and a granddad. And I still sometimes have to have tough talks with my children. Anybody else have to do that sometimes? And I was reminded this morning that the reason I do it is because I love them and I want to spare them the pain and suffering that comes with a life of disobedience. And isn't God so much greater than you and I? And he wants to do that a little bit more tonight. So I hope that you have a pad and pen ready. I hope that you'll write this down. I hope that you'll share this with your coworkers this week. I hope it'll come up in casual conversations. You're going about, hey, I learned some things about sin. You know, I know we both struggle with it. Maybe your best friend at work, maybe that guy that you work alongside, that gal that you work alongside, and you're with each other more than you are almost your family. And they start talking about the things they struggle in, and they sort of get down on themselves. And you say, hey, you know what? I learned something about the pattern of sin. Maybe I, maybe I can share it with you. And we can both gain strength as we walk the journey. So here we go, all right? Looking back, if you will, uh, back in verse number two, all the way back to verse number two, we're going to have four individual steps to the pattern. We're just going to go right back through them, except we're going to put it in the application of David's life, okay? Number one, what's the first part of the pattern? The pattern of sin begins with a lingering look. Verse two, what do we find David doing? He's supposed to be at war. Instead, he sends his army off. Back in these days, the, uh, the king would go to war with the army. You're tracking with me? He just didn't send his army. He'd go with him. <clears throat> and instead, he's at home. And as he's at home lingering, and notice it says about in the midday, he gets out of the bed. So he just, he just being sorry. 
You ever just be sorry? You know, you just kind of lay around, don't do nothing. Lay in the bed all day. Don't, just don't do it. They just be in And because of that, uh, he's relaxed. And, and boy, when we get relaxed, when we get just unfocused, don't we, don't we set ourselves up uh, for a lingering look? And so what happens? He walks outside. Look in verse 2. And when he goes out on his rooftop, he says, on the roof of the king's house. And I'm in verse 2. And from the roof, there it is, step one of the pattern, he saw and if David would have seen Bathsheba and said, oh, my goodness, there's a lady. She's not clothed. I've got to get back inside. Uh, I'm certain that he would not have fallen into such disrepair. But because of a lingering look, y'all tracking with me? Because he stayed a little bit longer, because he watched a little bit, because he paid attention to detail, because he liked what he saw, because it was beautiful. she was beautiful to behold. That word behold means to lingerly look at in anticipation of. And remember this, what you behold, you end up becoming. And he's looking upon her, and so first part of the pattern, it begins with a lingering look. Let me ask you something. Is there something in your life that's caught your attention that you know is harmful to you? Is there something in your past that's caught your attention? You're doing good. You were doing so well walking with Jesus, and you're walking in freedom, and all of a sudden something caught your attention. Maybe it was an old crawfish bowl. You know, you said, I'm going to just go to this crawfish bowl, and I'm going to do it. I'm not going to drink. I'm just going to go to this crawfish bowl. And, I'm gonna, and you went, and boy, you had a lingering look, and somebody's got that cold, icy cold one beside you. And that lingering, boy, some of y'all are, y'all come on, snap out of it now. And you, you, you just took a little lingering look, and before you know it, you've had four, five, or six. You know what I'm talking about, uh, a lingering look. Uh, I wish I could tell you how many times I've had conversations with people. When the affair begins, it doesn't begin in an instant. It begins with a lingering look. Somebody catches your eye. Somebody gets a little of your attention. You begin to look at them and watch them. And the lingering becomes pondering and beholding. And that's what happened to him. And so wouldn't you and I do better this week if the moment something catches our eye that we know is not of God, that we would look the other way, amen? Isn't that a simple principle? Just look the other way. But it is very difficult to practice. I wish somebody would amen. I got about four head nodding out there. I feel like a lone soldier in here tonight. Let me say, for me, it's hard to practice. And yet, wouldn't we be better off if the moment we caught something, caught something caught our eye that wasn't of God, we quickly looked the other way and changed the subject in our heart and mind. Okay, so it starts with a lingering look. Now watch, David's looking at her. She's bathing. He's, she's caught his eye. And now it proceeds to verse number three. So, so somebody asked me one time, how can you see the pattern of desire in his heart? Because if he didn't desire her, he wouldn't be asking questions about her. Huh? What you want, you start asking, okay, who is that, and what's her name, and how can I, you know, and so look what happens in verse 3. So David sent and inquired about the woman. He's asking questions. And somebody said, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Elam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Now, uh, it's interesting to me that even in the desire phase, he's not yet taken action. But the strength of the lingering look that leads to desire is a very strong, strong influence. You, you ready? And so think about it. Watch what happens. He, he, some, I love it because the scripture doesn't even give us a name. But God has put somebody there. See, the word of God says you will not be tempted by more than you can withstand. But God will provide a window of escape. There was his window and he didn't climb out it. And in your life, somebody may have told you that God will never put more on you than you can stand, and they lied. They took the Bible out of context, and you cannot find that truth from Genesis to Revelation. Nowhere. But what you will find is that God will not allow you to be tempted by more than you can stand without providing for you a window of escape. There's this window, a no-name window. All this week, my prayer is that if you find yourself lingering at something, the moment you see something, you know it's not of God, I pray you turn away. But if you don't, if you don't, if you proceed to step two, my prayer is that when the window presents itself, you dive at that sucker head first.
Can you imagine David's story? Uriah's story? Bathsheba's story? The child that died because, you know, the child she's pregnant with dies because of their, their encounter. Now, the child's reward is somebody said, would the child deserve that? Man, the child went on to heaven, never scratched their knee, never skint, never, never had to worry about who the president was. I mean, they never were hungry. They never cried. They never got a spanking. They went right on into heaven. That precious child went right on in. How do I know that? Because David said, I can't go where that child is. I mean, the child can't come to me, but I'm going to that child one day. And so we watch this thing unfold. So it proceeds to desire. Read with me. Somebody said, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Put the brakes on. You've looked too long at something you're not supposed to have, and you're desiring something that doesn't belong to you. And so you need to hit the brakes. But, man, I'm telling you, desire is so strong. You ever found yourself ignoring the window? Isn't it? Aren't we a special creature? And I'm talking about me and you. That God would graciously, instead of just saying, go ahead, I'm gonna, go ahead and take it. I'm going to slap your hand. Instead of that nature, God has the nature who says, I don't want you to suffer. I don't want you to suffer. I don't want you to suffer. Here, 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 here. here's a window. Here's a window. Listen, I'm, set, I'm sitting in no name somebody to be a window. Get out of that thing. And boy, we'll just ignore them. And I've done it. You've done it to our own detriment. And so he provides the window. Step two is a proceeds with desire. Remember what we said this morning. Desire is a very strong thing, isn't it? I mean, it's a strong, strong thing. It's what causes people, you hear stories and testimonies of people who've gone to MD Anderson to have part of their lung removed because of lung cancer due to smoking. And I have heard stories, personal testimonies, of those who've had most of a lung removed and just as soon as possible asking people to wheel them outdoors so they can get a cigarette. Want to. Desire. It's a very strong thing, okay? So reading on down in the testimony of a man by the name of David, Bathsheba, and his valiant soldier Uriah, picking up in verse number four, and the third step in the process is that we, the sin, the pattern of sin is it begins with a lingering look, and if we don't look away and we linger on it and ponder on it, it proceeds to desire, and desires are very strong, very powerful, it's like a snare, it, it snares us, and we began to, next step is we, we desire it long enough, finally, we take action. It, pro- it proceeds, or excuse me, it progresses to action. What's David's action? What does he do? Verse 4, David sent messengers, and what did he do? Took her. Now notice it doesn't say he invited her. The word in the Hebrew is there is not for a cordial invitation. It's not the same word that in the Hebrew that would say, he asked her if she'd like to come have tea. He took her. Now you imagine, here she is, one of the king's soldier's wife. She loved Uriah. How do we know? She mourned his death. And she's missing him. He's away on the battlefield, and he's not home with her, and she's missing him. And all of a sudden, there's a knock at the door. And and David didn't go himself. He sent. And so somebody else, see, remember this, your sin never just affects you. So now there's somebody else brought into the role of the lying and the deceiving and the murder, and they're knocking at her door, and she comes to the door and says, hey, you, the king has summoned you. Now, our American way of thinking won't let us live that moment because you've not ever usually had many people come to your house and say, get in the car. You'd say, I'm not going. There are many of us in here that say, unless you have a, even if it was law enforcement, we'd say, you better have a, a, a subpoena. You better have some kind of paper, a warrant. You got to have something that proves you can even come in my house. We have this American way of thinking, but this wasn't America. And when the king said, come, and you got in the car, or you understand it wasn't a car, but you went. And so against her, probably even against her will, she goes. So notice what's happened. He looked too long. He desired it strong. God provided a window of escape. He ignored it. 
And he goes ahead and takes the action. Okay, takes the bait. So it proceeds to action. Let me read a little further. And she came to him, and he lay with her, and she was cleansed for her impurity, and she returned to her house. And the woman conceived, and so she sent and told David and said, I am with child. Notice there's no, hey, I really enjoyed our time together. You see that? Just a simple, straightforward message. I'm pregnant. Then David springs into action. Why? Because once you've taken the bait and you've taken the action, you begin to live a hardened heart, a hardened life based on the deceit that you can hide it, you can cover it up, you can make up for it. Somehow you can make it go away. And that's not the truth. So what happens? Verse 6, David sent to Joab and he said, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Job and Joab sent Uriah to David. Now what I'm going to do is I'm going to show you, <clears throat> if I can, four attempts to cover up in this stage of deception, okay? So you can write them in there as you go along. First attempt to cover is verses 7 through 11. Verses 7 through 11, let me read, okay? You write it. Under deceives, the, the process and the pattern of sin that deceives us, the first, there's, there's going to be a, t- here's what I want you to understand. You're not just going to make up one smooth little lie to cover it all up and make it go away. So, and we don't give up easy, do we? And we don't want the truth to come out, and so we, oh, boy, we're crafty. And listen to this. Did you know that you and I have the capacity to be wicked? Even after we've been born again. Every one of us. Every one of us. So we're reading along verse 7. Uriah had come to him, and David asked how Joab was doing. Now, remember, David asked Joab to go get Uriah. But when Uriah gets here, he says, well, hey, tell me how Joab's doing. Well, you should ask him yourself. He was just here. But Uriah didn't know that. And so he's playing the game. Joab was doing and how the people were doing. in verse 7, and how the war prospered. And David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And so Uriah departed from the king's house, and the gift of food was from the king followed him. But Uriah slipped at the door. Now notice in verse 9, it begins with a contrast word, but. So that, that's a key. When you're, when you're doing biblical interpretation, you understand there's a contrast. So if you don't know that there's a contrast there, you don't pick up on that word, but. You think, well, okay, he, he didn't sleep at home. When you see the but contrast, it means that what the actions before that were trying to get him to sleep somewhere and in contrast, he didn't sleep there. Does that make sense to you? So that's where you learn the motive of what David was doing. David was trying to get him to go sleep at home with his wife because he'd been on the battlefield in hopes that it would cover everything up. Okay? So let me read a little further along. He sends him there. He sends food. Wasn't that that nice of David to have some food there for him, you know, set kind of room service sent to to their home? But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house. You kidding me? He slept out by the door. He didn't find a comfortable spot. He didn't get on his couch. The king didn't invite him in to sleep in, a, in, a, in one of the uh, servants' quarters. He slept by the door. Why? He loved his king. Spent his life defending him and fighting for him. And so Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. So when they told David, hey, Dave, um, Uriah didn't go down to his house. And David said to Uriah, did you not come from a journey? Don't you want to go home, man? You've been gone all these days. Go spend some time with your wife. Why did you not go down to your house? And Uriah said to David, boy, you talk about a noble man, a man of integrity. Uriah said, the ark of, the, of and Israel and Judah are dwelling in tents. And my Lord Joab and the servants of my Lord are encamped in the open fields. They've got battle on, awaiting on the horizon. They're not enjoying their comfortable beds, and we've trained together, and we've committed our lives to serving in the military together, and we're going to fight together. And you think I'm just going to go home and sleep in my comfortable bed while my brother's out there on the battlefield? Shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and to lie with my wife? As you live, I love this, as you live, king, and as your soul lives, I I will not do this thing. 
I will not enjoy the comforts of life when my brothers are out there ready to battle, sleeping in tents. Man, what a, what a noble guy. What, a, what an integrity. What, a, what a, a time of integrity. And by the way, just because you live a life of integrity doesn't mean that you're going to be spared difficult situations. I want you to think for just a minute about what we oftentimes overlook, and that is the life of Uriah, a man who is a man of integrity, a man who is fighting for the king, a man who committed his life to do that. And so sometimes we feel like if we do the right thing, if we just do the right thing, if we just pray and receive Jesus, if we just go to church and we sort of, you know, kind of serve, then, then Jesus owes us something. Someone told me this last week. I just know this makes me happy, and I know God wants me to be happy. And I said, where do you find that verse? And I said, let me give you a different verse. Be ye holy as I am holy. So then scripturally, we can prove that God is more concerned with your holiness than your happiness. Now watch how it continues to go. And, and drink and lie with my So verse number 12, we're going to talk about the second attempt. So the first attempt to cover was 7 through 11. It was, a, it was step one in this cover-up. I'm just going to get him to go home. And surely he's been gone while long enough. They'll lie together and it'll all take care of itself. But it didn't. So we have to go step two. Boy, have you ever tried to cover up sin before? And you thought, well, I'll just tell a little lie here. And uh, by the way, you don't hear this conversation in most pulpits and in most congregations. But we just want to be honest, right? Have you ever found you, you fall into sin and you say, I'm going to tell this lie right here. And you tell the lie and you think this is going. We think we're pretty slick, don't we? And David thought he was pretty slick. We said, well, I'll do this. I'll say that, you know. And then you do it and say it and nobody buys it. And boy, you got to do something different. So second attempt to cover, verse 12. So then David said, Uriah, uh, wait here today also, and tomorrow I will let you depart. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. So David's thinking, what am I going to do? I know I'll just have him over. I'll get him drunk, and surely then he's going to go and lie with his wife. So now when David called him, he ate and drank before him, and he made him drunk. And you can just see him serving him a little more, serving him a little more. And boy, if I get him just drunk enough, but not too drunk, but just drunk enough that he'll go home and it'll all take care of himself. And an evening he went out to lie on his bed with the servants of his Lord, not with his wife. But he did not go down to his house. Even drunk, he wouldn't lay down his integrity. Isn't it interesting? A second attempt is made. Well, let's move on just a little bit and talk for a minute about the third attempt. You ready? So the sec first attempt was just to give him some food, get him to go home. That didn't work, so he got him drunk. Tried to use that. That didn't work. Third attempt to cover is going to be verse 14 to 24. Okay, write that in your notes. 14, verse 14 to verse 24. Verse, by the way, y'all have as much fun as I am. I mean, this leaps off the page at me. It does. And it says to me, Terry, pay attention. Because if you'll get this pattern, if you'll begin to understand how it works, then you'll be wise to the enemy's schemes of temptation, and you'll be sensitive to my spirit leading you to windows of escape. And matter of fact, maybe you'll stop and cut it off in step number one, pattern of step number one. That is, you won't look too long. And the rest of it will take care of itself. Let me move on, all right? Picking up in verse 14. In the morning it happened that David wrote a letter. So David wakes up, and he sees that rascal... Well, except he's not a rascal outside his door. And don't you know there had to be a moment, but his heart is so hard. How could a man do what he did with another man's wife and have the man so full of loyalty and integrity that he wouldn't go sleep at his house even when he was drunk? When he comes out and sees him asleep, shouldn't there have been like some movement in his heart if he had any compassion, any love to say, man, this guy really loves me. I need to come clean. I need to confess. I need to, I need to take that stuff that's hidden in the floor of my tent, and I need to get it out so God can bring cleansing and forgiveness. But boy, when you're living in that deceit phase, you'll be so deceived. Listen, how ridiculous is it to think that we can lie our way out of what we've done, and the consequences will go away? 
Now, when you say it like that, it sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? But we've all done it. We've all done it. So we're reading along, and we find out the second attempt to cover didn't work. Third attempt is now going to be a letter that's written up, verse 14. And it happened that David wrote a letter to Joab, and he sent it by the hand of Uriah. Now, that just strikes me, doesn't it? Not only does you talk about uh, living a hard heart. I'm going to write a letter out, and the man that has loyally slept outside my door wouldn't even go see his wife because he's defending me as the king. I'm going to write his death sentence out. And the way that I'm going to do it is say, listen, take him to the hottest part of the battle, and then make him think that all of y'all are with him, and he's with his band of brothers. And then all of y'all, I don't care about the fact that y'all built relationship and that you've served together. And when you serve and fight together, you have a strong bond together. But, but David, I don't care about that, Joab. Get over it. Get him out there on the hottest part of the battle, and then leave him by himself. And let him kill him, murder him right out there in the field. Can't you see your eye taking this letter? Man, the king's giving me a letter. The king's trusting me to deliver a letter. And the very letter that he carries is his own death sentence. See, when you and I take the bait, I'm telling you, we can become a monster. The hardness and the deceitfulness of sin, any of us in this room could do anything when we find ourselves in this phase, when we're living in deceit, right? He's convinced himself he can get out of it. He can get away from it. It's a lie, but he's living based on the lie. So Uriah gets the letter. Let's read a little further along. Wrote a letter to Joab, sent it by the hand of Joab, and he wrote in the letter saying, set Uriah in the forefront of the hottest battle. In other words, find the spot where he's most likely to get killed. Well, we find out that's up close to the wall. Now, sending your soldiers up close to the wall makes Joab look stupid. So it's why Joab said, if he asks you why you got him up close to the wall, you just, at the end of that, you just say, Uriah's dead too, and he'll remember why. Man, I'm telling you, the deceit phase is a hard thing to watch. It's a hard thing to live through. Let me read a little further. Hottest battle and retreat from him that he may, I'm into verse 15, that he may be struck down and die. And so it was that while Joab besieged the city that he assigned Uriah a place where he knew there would be valiant men, meaning he knew there were going to be warriors that could fight really well. And so he says, listen, I've got to send Uriah to this certain spot so that I can be sure that he's going to be killed. Uh, then the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the people of the servants of David fell, and Uriah the Hittite fell also. What we learn about verse 16 and verse 17, the details that are not there are the fact that Joab did exactly what his king told him to do. And so, and so think about it. David has, it all started with a lingering look. And she was beautiful to behold. And the thing about sin is it never lets you know what the end result of you taking the bait's going to be. So he takes the bait, right? Looks a little too long and it turns into desire and desire leads him to take action and he takes action and he sins before God against God and because of that now he's living under the deceit, the hardness of sin, it's hardened his heart and he's gone from uh, trying to just trick the guy into lying with his wife to now sending him to the battlefield with his own fellow soldiers and setting him up to be killed. I don't know about you, but to me I'm just thinking to myself, my goodness, I don't know how in heaven's name that God loves us. I don't, listen, I'm telling you, I cannot make one bit of sense out of the fact that God desires me and you. I know he does. I'm not questioning that. But what I can't figure out is why. We are wicked, man. Even after we've been born again, we'll take the bait. And then we'll, our hearts will be hardened and we'll do all manner of evil. And I don't know why God fools with us, but can I just pause right here and say, I am so thankful that he does. I'm so thankful that when David did this, and, and I'm going to say this candidly, so just bear with me, God should have killed him. And I can say about me, and I tell people this all the time, God should have killed me how I was living my life. 
but he spared me and he spared David. And aren't you glad God can take rascals like me and David and you and transform our lives and repair the damage of sin and restore the years of locusts of eating, Joel 2.29, and can make beautiful things come out of difficult places. I'm so thankful he can. So this third attempt was to send him over, and the third attempt worked, didn't it? And so he sends him out there, and he does. Can you just see your eye? I can see him getting his sword ready, getting his shield ready. He goes back out to the battlefield. He's carrying his letter. He doesn't know what the letter says. He's just thankful to be able to carry a letter from the king. You know, the back of that thing is sealed with a, with a type of hot wax and a signet ring. And so nobody would break the seal until it got there. So he's not going to look at it. He's just happy to carry the thing. He's honorable. Nobody gets, not just anybody gets to carry a letter from the king. And yet it's his own destiny. He delivers it to Joab. Can you see Joab breaking the seal? Bam. And maybe you rise in the room. And he starts to read, you know, and hey, and, and what do you do if your eyes are looking over your shoulder, right? Oh, oh hold on. <laughs> I got to read this part by myself. Hold on just a minute. And now, now, he, David's sin has invited Joab in. And, and now Joab's playing the part, and his life is going to be impacted. And so now he's thinking about, I got to send you around. Now you think about it. The next day, whenever they go to battle, uh, Uriah gets his assignment, all right? Joab says, you got to go here. And he's thinking, yes, he's got his sword. He's got his buddies, his battle warrior buddies. And they've trained and they've committed their lives. And they're running out there together. And they're sword fighting. And things are happening. And they're getting up close. And they're getting up close to the wall. And they're about to take this thing and overcome because that's what God's people do. And all of his other soldiers back away from him. And the first arrow hits him in the, in the arm, you know. And, man, don't you know that thing hurt? Another arrow appeared to penetrate him. He's thinking, man, where are my guys? He looks up and they're all running. And the last scenes of his life, he sees his friends, his fellow soldiers running from him. And I'm telling you, I'm telling you that you and I are capable of doing some wicked things when we live in the phase of deceit. Once we've taken the bait and we've let the sin harden our heart and we're not repentant and we don't confess it and we don't get it right before God and we, I'm telling you, we, become, we can become a monster. Okay, I'm trying to move on. Y'all are like, man, well, how long are we going to hang out here? I need you to see the depths of which you and I can go to when we take the bait, Okay. So the pattern is, step one, all right? Help me out. Let's say it together. It begins with a lingering look. Come on, help me finish this thing, all right? Number two, it proceeds with desire. And desire is a very powerful thing. Want to, all right? Thirdly, it progresses to we go ahead and do it. We want to do it, we do it, all right? Fourth, and we, once we've done it, we live deceived. Our heart hardens, and we just, man, we make matters worse. So let's read along, and I'm going to show you the fourth attempt to cover. Now you say, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Your eyes have already been dealt with. The secret is gone. It's hidden. Nobody can, you know, Uriah can't be hurt. He's, 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 he's gone. Um, but there's still somebody that knows everything that's going on. And he's going to get a word from the king to try to cover things up as well. It's found in verse 25. You see it? So the messenger goes back to David just like Joab told him and says, hey, you know, we went up to the wall, this, 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 but just know that Uriah's dead. David didn't ask any more questions. He's He's good. He's thinking to himself, he's really deceived enough to think that it's, it's, it's over. He got away with it. And some time has passed, you understand? And so some time has passed. And maybe in your life there are some things that are hidden, some sins that have taken place, and some time has passed. And you, like me in the past, think that you're going to get away with it. And it's never gonna, there's never going to be. And you don't have to confess it and get right with God about it. And everything's going to be okay. And so next thing is verse 25. And David said to the messenger, thus you shall go. So now the messenger's going on another trip back to Joab. And he says, you tell Joab, don't let this thing displease you. Now, why do you think he would say to Joab, don't let this thing displease you? Literally, that word displease means uh, to let it be considered as evil in your sight. And why do you think he would do that? 
Because what do you think Joab is thinking about all this? This is evil. He's thinking this is evil. So the king has to say, hey, don't, look, don't think too much about it. Don't think too much about the fact that you murdered one of your soldiers. Don't think too much about it. Don't think too much about the last scenes of Uriah's life was his own fellow soldiers running, leaving him high and dry till arrows pierced through him and he died on the battlefield. Don't think too much about that because, hey, people die. What a wicked attitude we can get. Verse 25, and David said, Thus shall I say to Joab, Do not let this thing displease you, for the sword devours one just as well as another. People die on the battlefield. Strengthen your attack. Now, what he does is refocuses Joab and says, Now you've got an assignment so that you're not lingering and thinking about this evil thing. I want you to get back to the assignment and lose your focus and get back. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it and so encourage him. Now, the so encourage him was the word of the messenger. So he said, now you take this and encourage him by saying, don't think too much about this. People die in battle, but here's what, listen, you focus on this. You take the city. Well, Joab's a man of battle, so now he's going to focus all his energy on taking the city. Verse number 26, when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she mourned for her husband. I'm telling you that sin has collateral damage. Wouldn't you agree with me? It has collateral damage. And so we look through this thing, and it says in verse number 27, And when her mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. Hey, we're together. That's what we wanted. And we're happily ever after. And we've gotten away with it. And the one who would have been hurt and knew about it is dead and gone. And years of, things are going well. It's just like we wanted it. Except there's a sentence at the end of the verse you need to pay close attention to. But the thing that David had done displease the Lord. And you know the thing about God is <clears throat> he's, able to, uh, he's able to rectify situations. And he does it rightly and justly. And think for a minute about what happens. So later on, you know what happens later, right? A, a prophet by the name of Nathan pays David a visit. Seemingly out of nowhere. And he tells him a story. Do you remember the story? It's about a rich man who has all of these lambs, all of these sheep, all of this wonderful flock. And the man, the rich man, has a visitor come in town. And instead of going and getting one of his own lambs and killing it and serving it, he takes the poor man who has one little ewe lamb that's so very special to him. And he goes and takes this man's ewe lamb, his own special, only lamb the man has, and takes it away from him and kills it and serves it. And David is infuriated. Do you remember how it goes to pass? And David is, he says, that man, as sure as I'm standing here, that man shall surely die. And Nathan says one of the most profound, pointed statements ever recorded in the Word of God. Nathan said, you are the man. And boy, David, don't you know in that moment he thought he'd gotten away from it. God sent a messenger to him. Sent the prophet who is God's message, mouthpiece, to say, you know what? You didn't get away with it. This is what God has seen. This is what you've done. And David begins to repent. You remember his, his heart is broken. He's repentant. Uh, let me just go on and say this to you. So in the midst of this, you and I would agree that we, like David, could fall to the exact same pattern. You agree with that statement? Every one of us, from the preacher to the, uh, to, to the praise team, to anybody in this room and anybody who's listening to this message outside of here, even in other countries right now, and those who listen to the podcast later on, all of us have the capacity. We, we can't stand today in judgment and say, man, David, I can't believe that guy, because you and I can, can do and have done some of the same things. So aren't we thankful tonight for the mercy and the grace of God afforded us through the suffering death of Jesus Christ, God's only Son? Can you imagine where we'd be if it were not for Jesus? Hopeless and helpless 
and groping in the darkness. So let's just say this, though. Let's just kind of logically walk through this thing. So even though if we've been born again, and if you've not been, the good news is it's not too late for you. You could be born again tonight. But if you have been, the second question I'd ask is, do you also understand that all of us in the room have that capacity even after we've been born again? Yeah. How do you know that? Well, write this in your notes. Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7. Now, do you know what Romans chapter 7 deals with? Who wrote it? You remember who wrote Romans? Paul. And Paul is dealing with here the struggle of sin and doing the right thing and living righteously and not. And so I'm going to paraphrase here, but you go and read it sometime. Uh, maybe tonight before you get to bed, that's that calorie-free dessert. You can lay down and you won't gain a pound. And, and here's what, I'm going to paraphrase, but here's what he says. The thing that I know I'm supposed to do, I don't do. The thing that I hate and that I don't want to do, I find myself doing. And what he says in the midst of that is that when, when the law came, it activated sin. Now, what does that mean? That means that when you and I are told we're not supposed to do something or we can't have something, because of who we are at birth, born with a broken heart, right? Not broken as in sad, but broken as in not holy. We immediately, when we're told we can't do it, we immediately want to do it. And the want to is powerful. I got a mini whipping when my mom and dad said, don't do it. And I'm like, but boy, I want to. And the want to led me to go ahead. And I paid the price many a time. And isn't it, isn't it interesting about how we, how we do that? So think about for a minute that Romans 7. He says, he says the law. So when I'm told I can't do something, I want to do it. And then he goes on to say, who's going to do He said, oh, I love it. At the end of Romans 7, Paul says, and you can hear he builds it. He builds it. He's like, I do this thing I hate to do. I don't know how to do the right thing. I know I'm supposed to do, but I don't, know if, I don't find the power to do it. And he says, oh, wretched man. That I, I, when I read through it, I feel his frustration because I deal with it in my own self. And I believe you will feel it in your own self because you deal with it in your own self. And at the end of chapter 7, he says, Oh, wretched man that I am, who's going to deliver me from this body of death? And then he answers his own question. I'm going to read it. It's Romans 7, 24 and 25. Read along with me there in your seat, if you will. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of death? I thank God. Through Jesus Christ, somebody help me, our Lord. So who's going to give me help? Jesus is. Whether that be at salvation, but that's not the end of his help. Hallelujah. Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad Jesus didn't just a savior at the moment of salvation, but that he's a savior who walks with me and talks with me along life's narrow way. It's narrow because broad is the way that leads to destruction and death, but narrow is the way that leads to life. And he walks with me along the journey. And he says to me, Terry, don't look there. Don't look there. Don't look there. Oh, you glance. Don't look any longer. Come look this way. Look this way. And he'll say to me, if I look too long and desire bills, he'll say, meet with me in the morning in the word. Meet with me in the midday in the word. Talk to me, pray without ceasing, and I'll remove the desire from your heart. If you continue to linger in desire, you go ahead and take the action. If you'll confess, if you'll spend time with me in the morning time in the Word of God and let it wash over you, you will have to have a repentant heart. Are you with me? You can't stay close to Jesus and not repent when you've fallen into sin. You cannot. And then when you do, he says, if you'll repent and confess, I'll, I'll send times of refreshing, and I'll forgive your sin and cleanse you from every unrighteous deed and thought you've ever had. So the key to it all is a man named Jesus. And the key to it all is staying close to the man named Jesus. It's not trying harder to break up. See, some of us are writing this pattern now, so we say, I'm going to go out this week, and I'm going to tack this pattern. I got my pattern wrote out. I got my battle plan wrote out. Your battle plan ought to be first and foremost on your face before God, the first sweetest hour of the day. It's the only hope you've got. It's the only hope you've got. Just because you know the pattern don't mean you can break the pattern. Only one can give you the strength to do that. 
And you'll have to, you and I will have to die at his feet daily, listening to his word, feeding on his word, talking to him, praying, if we're ever going to find a way to break the pattern and live a life that magnifies him, full of holy moments in his presence. So here's what I'm going to do. I invite you to bow with me tonight. I'm surprised our time is up. I don't know about you guys. I feel like I was just getting warmed up. But you look like you're ready to go home, so we're going to pray together, okay? Would you just bow with me for a moment? And I just want to ask a question. Are you, I just, I just want to know this. Are you grateful to God that his word is so full of rich instruction? Anybody here like me? I mean, I'm so glad God shows us such rich instruction that we can see how it unfolds and know the schemes of the enemy. Any of y'all, me and Brother Joey, I'm raising my hand up because I'm so thankful that his word is so full of instruction. Now tonight, here's what our prayer ought to be. God, help me to stay near to you. Help me stay near to you. I want to magnify you. I want to have a life full of holy moments in your presence. And I know that sin is the number one obstacle to both of those, to, to magnifying you and to staying close and experiencing your presence to the fullest. So, Lord, tonight, help me this week as I go out, as I face temptation. How many of you are going to face temptation this week? It's going to I'm telling you, hey, when you leave out of here, it's waiting right outside the doors, maybe inside the doors. Temptation to lose our temper. Temptation to talk bad about people. Temptation to slander, to gossip. Temptation to, uh, to, to take the bait, right? Temptation to uh, use substances against what their design is for. Uh, temptation to be drunk. Temptation to uh, step outside marriage. Temptation to, there's so much temptation. But we have a Savior. And the Word of God says, greater is he that's in me than he that's in this world. And so we don't have to leave out of here saying, boy, it's going to be a tough week. We can live out of here saying, boy, I'm going to stay close to Jesus and it's going to be a great week. If you're here tonight, you've never been born again. No better time than now for you to have a change of mind. Repentance. It means the changing of the mind that leads to changing of action. You can't be Lord. There has to be a time when you vacate the throne and invite Jesus. Believing he died and rose again, the Son of God. And saying, Lord Jesus, come be Lord of my life. He'll save you and give you purpose. I'm so thankful he saved me. And I know this with great confidence. If he can save me, he can save anybody. If you've been born again, let's take courage from his word. To stay near and to understand the pattern. And as we see it unfold, we stay in constant conversation with God. Oh Lord, oh Lord, I look too long. I look too long. Take the desire out of my heart. I don't want to go to, st- I don't want to go phase two. Lord, I look too long. Or, Lord, I glance at that and I take it out of my mind. I don't want it in my mind. Let me, let me just begin to praise you. Let me just talk to you. Let me sing to you. Every step of the pattern, wherever we find ourselves, we stay in constant conversation with the one who saved us and is saving us. So, Father, I pray you take this time of response. And, Lord, whatever you want to do here tonight, you do it. You do it, God. You're the only one who can bring increase. You're the only one who can grant repentance. You're the only one, Lord, who can bring us to a sweet place close to you. So, please, draw us near. Draw us near in Jesus' name. I want to say the altar is open. I'm going to invite you to stand with me. As you feel led of God, just respond accordingly.